From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Because they're small, you wouldn't think they'd cause much trouble. But kidney stones the size of a grain of sand can be extremely painful. Patients are usually very distressed because the small stones are the ones that hurt the worst. They'll have a lot of pain. They'll go to the emergency room, pass the stone, and it's just a tiny fleck. The larger stones tend to just sit in the kidney and rarely cause the severe pain that you see on TV. We'll hear about kidney stones and why they're more common in the summertime. And a new study has found that eating either dark or milk chocolate helps lower your risk of heart disease. Also on the program, what's new in anesthesiology? We'll talk about advances, including robot-delivered anesthesia. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, they may be small, but they can cause a whole lot of hurt. <laughs> Kidney stones can lead to severe pain in your side, your back, your flank, and in your abdomen or your groin. And they can also cause painful urination, even nausea, vomiting, fevers, and chills. In short, they can make for a bad day or a bad night. Yeah, kidney stones are small. They're small, hard mineral deposits that form inside your kidneys. More than 10% of Americans will develop at least one kidney stone in their lifetime. Surprisingly, summer is a prime time for kidney stones. Good time to talk about it, That's I guess. That's right. And here to tell us more about kidney stones and how they're treated is Mayo Clinic urologist, Dr. Amy Crambeck. Welcome to the program, Dr. Crambeck. Nice to have you with us. Thank you for having me. We should talk about the summer summertime stone piece because that's why you're here is because this comes up for conversation. I think the last time that you were in to see us, we were talking about why they're more prevalent in the summertime. But refresh our memory. There is a reoccur- or a higher rate of kidney stones in the summer, correct? Yes. Uh, the summer is definitely my busy time of year. And what happens is uh, stones are directly related to your hydration status. So Um, In the winter, you're drinking more, you're not sweating as much, it's not as hot, so your body is more hydrated. Um, In the summer, when you do more activities outside, you sweat more, the heat evaporates more fluids from your body, and you're more likely to have concentrated urine and form a stone. One of the things uh, that uh, I read recently is that kidney stones are twice as common today as they were in the 90s, in the 1990s. How do you explain that? It's it's attributed to our fabulous diets. So <laughs> um, the more food we have available, the more we have, more intake we have, um, the more gluttonous diet we have, and the more likely we are to have kidney stones. It, is it because of what we eat, or the fact that we don't stay hydrated when we do eat, or well, what's the connection there? Yeah. So it, there's really a 101 ways to form a kidney stone. Hydration is the number one uh, component. So if you're dehydrated, you're going to form kidney stones. But there's also several other components to it. So if there's calorie excess, protein excess, um, if your body's too acidic, all those things can cause you to form a kidney stone. And we're seeing that uh, people are eating more, higher calories. They're also under more stress, which changes your body pH and causes you to form stones. So there's a lot of factors going on that is increasing the stone rate in the United States. I hadn't heard the protein tie-in, that oh. excess protein in your diet can help contribute to kidney stones? 
Yes. So there, there's been some controversial studies uh, on protein content and stone formation. Uh, the reason they're controversial is that they were always tied to another factor. So nobody ever just studied protein. They studied protein in fluids or protein in calcium. But in those studies, it showed that patients who had high-protein diets were at higher risk of forming kidney stones. And generally, that's thought to be related to the pH changes. So when you're on a protein diet, we call it an ash acid diet. You're increasing the acid in your body, and that has to be excreted somewhere, and it's excreted in the urine, and that increases your risk of forming kidney stones. Well, so we've got diet and uh, lack of uh, fluid intake. Stress. As re- stress as a risk factor. Any others? Um. Some people believe that uh, strenuous activities, so if you formed a stone in the past and it's just sitting in the kidney, if you go out and ride an ATV or do some jump on a trampoline, you could dislodge that stone that could cause you to have acute symptoms. It's not going to cause you to form the stone, but it may make a stone that's been sitting quietly in your kidney move. Because isn't the fact that it's the, the pain comes from when you pass the stone, not yes. from the stone being formed. Is that right? That's that's very true. Is that so, spoken like someone who has never had a kidney stone problem before? I'm yeah. not quite sure where the pain comes from. Uh, patients are, are usually very distressed because the small stones are the ones that hurt the worst. So, you know, they'll have a lot of pain. They'll go to the emergency room, pass the stone, and it's just a tiny fleck. And then they feel bad about that. But actually, the smaller the stone, generally, the more painful it is. Uh, the larger stones tend to just sit in the kidney and, and rarely cause the severe pain that you see on TV or hear about your friends having. This is supposed to be one of the worst pains there is. Is that correct or can be? Yes. <laughs> so when the question, when do you go to the doctor? I guess any time you had one, you would go to the doctor, wouldn't you? Unless you'd had multiple ones and you said, I'm just going to uh, treat the pain and let it pass? Yes. Yeah, so patients who have had stones before, know their body. They, they know what they can and can't tolerate. So they might be the person that will stay at home and tough it out. Um, but if you have pain that you can't relieve with over-the-counter pain medication, you're not able to keep fluids down. You notice a fever um, or you're having chills, you definitely need to go into the emergency room and be evaluated. We can talk more about kidney stones and kidney stone treatment and family history and all that stuff on the other side of the break. But before we take the break, I just want to say for the summertime piece of it, um, I never really thought about summertime um, and having to worry about my kidneys. Is the main cause of worry a kidney stone or can you actually damage your kidneys in the summertime without enough hydration? I think most adults um, have kidneys that are quite resilient. So the likelihood of damaging your your kidneys uh, just by being poorly hydrated in the summer is very low. Uh, The people that really need to worry about that are people who already have underlying renal insufficiency or poorly functioning kidneys to begin with. Those are the people that are already being counseled on how much fluid they should take. But the general person, you know, you're going to drink if you're thirsty. You're going to keep yourself hydrated. Um, When it comes to kidney stones, I, I tell my patients I don't, really care how much you drink, I care how much you pee. Mm. And in the summer, if you're sweating, you're not making as much urine. And so you need to drink more to keep your urine volumes up to prevent the stone formation. Once you do have a stone or pass a stone, is it important to know what kind of stone that is and how do you find out? It's very important to know what your stone is made of. Um, The best way to do that is to capture the stone. So if you see it pass, grab it from the toilet. (laughs) 
if you can bring yourself to do it. I would imagine, though, that you're in the emergency room if you're in that much pain that you probably wouldn't be at home. Sometimes what will happen is you'll come into the emergency room. They'll control your pain, but you still have the stone in place, and you're still actively passing it. So they'll send you home with a strainer. So it's important Mm. to urinate into the strainer and retrieve that stone. Um, Then we can analyze it, see what it's made of, and that really goes a long way in telling us how to prevent further stones for you. Anything else that these patients need to have in terms of workup if they have developed a kidney stone other than knowing what it is and hopefully they can catch it? So for all patients who have had a kidney stone, we do a basic uh, office visit. We do a history. We ask about their family history. We do some basic lab tests. Now, if they've had previous stones, then we're going to do a more intensive workup, which is a 24-hour urine study trying to figure out why they're forming the stone. If it's the first stone they've ever had, we'll talk to them about the benefits of doing a more extensive workup, but they may they may not need anything more than just a simple office visit. All right, urologist Dr. Amy Krambeck. She is an expert on kidney stones. We'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the treatment options for kidney stones, if you can't uh, pass it, and also some preventive measures in addition to hydration and whether or not there are any herbal remedies that will dissolve a stone. (laughs) How about myth or matter of fact, Tom? There is a kidney stone belt in the U.S., and Florida is one of the states on that belt. That's almost a hint as to whether this is a myth or a fact. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest, a Mayo Clinic urologist and kidney stone expert, Dr. Amy Krambeck. So, Dr. Krambeck, we've talked about the potential causes for kidney stones, the risk factors, and some preventive measures, probably the most important being hydration. So let's talk about uh, what happens if you develop a kidney stone and it doesn't pass and you're stuck with the pain. What can you do as a urologist to help these people? Well, then you, you need to come see me or, <laughs> or see a like type of urologist. And there's several treatments that we can perform. And it really depends on the size of the stone and the location of the stone. Probably the most common treatment in the United States is shockwave lithotripsy. Uh, that's when a patient is placed on a, an operating table. Shockwaves are put through their body and focused onto the stone. The stone breaks up into pieces, and then the person has to pass that stone on their own. Wait a minute. You're taking one big stone that you have already said is relatively not causing a lot of pain and making a whole bunch of little tiny stones that they have to pass, and that's a good solution? That's, that is a solution, yeah. But uh, the stone fragments should theoretically be so small that you can't feel them as okay, they pass. Okay, good. Now, it used to be this shock wave lithotripsy. You used to put a, you used to have a big bath out at uh, St. Mary's Hospital. It was a huge tub, and you would put the patient down in the water, but I see the tub's gone. Yes, that was a, an amazing machine. It was probably the best, best lithotriptor ever made and ever to be made. Uh, and the patients were anesthetized, put on a gantry, and then lowered down into a water tub. Unfortunately, it took up a very large operating room, and it wasn't financially feasible to, to do that. So the company stopped making the machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't buy parts for it. And now we have these mobile lithotriptors, which have little water pillows that are placed against the patient and unfortunately our success rates are just not the same as what we had with the water that was a great tub you know if you're thinking about remodeling your bathroom Hmm. i would see if that thing's still around maybe yeah you could (laughs) give a little vibration when you're in there so how do you figure out where where that stone is you said it depends on the size of the stone and where it is and we're talking about the 
uh, ureter, which is the tube that goes down between the kidney and the bladder, and the stone's someplace in there. How do you figure out where it is? Generally, a CT scan or a CAT scan is performed when the patient presents to the emergency room. Um, and that tells us very excellent information on the size, location, sometimes even the composition of the stone. Um, and then we can base our treatment on that. All right. Other options if you the lithotripsy is, for some reason, not the chosen modality of treatment? For, for a ureteral stone, ureteroscopy is the next common uh, treatment, next most common treatment option. And it's where a small scope, um, smaller than a pencil, is advanced up through the bladder, through the urethra to the stone, and then a hair-like laser is used to break up the stone, and then a basket pulls out all those little pieces. And you're asleep for that, I assume. You are totally asleep for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's highly efficient. Uh, Stone-free rates are near 100% with this procedure. The problem is is it is more invasive. Uh, The recovery time is a little bit longer. You're often left with a stent, uh, which is a temporary tube left in the ureter to keep the swelling down, and that's painful. And then you have to pull that out at a it later time. It has to time. be pulled out. You have to be anesthetized to pull it out? You or? are not anesthetized for that, okay. no. So there's two ways to remove a stent. It's either left on a piece of string that comes out the urethra, um, and you pull it yourself at home. Um, and that is the look I get <laughs> from every patient when I tell them to you do it. You want me to do what? <laughs> I was waiting for him to say something. I still don't know about that one. Um, the other options to cut the string off, and then we bring you in the office and put a small scope in your bladder and retrieve it that way. Um, I don't quite understand if you've got the tiny little stones that hurt so much when they come out, and you've got the big stones that tend to stay in place. Why can't you just leave the big stones there? That's a very good question. Um, sometimes you can. So certain stones can be observed indefinitely. And will they dissolve on their own? They will not dissolve. They never on their do. Own. Okay. There is one type of stone that may dissolve if you can change your urinary pH, which is a uric acid stone. Uh, most patients need to take medication to raise their urinary pH to dissolve that stone. But otherwise, no other stone compositions will dissolve. So if you can make your urine more alkaline, then you can dissolve that stone. Uric acid stones. Uric acid stones. To complicate the matter worse, certain stones like alkaline urine. So calcium phosphate stones will form in very alkaline urine. So You trade one stone for another? Exactly. <laughs> I have a couple <laughs> of myths that I want to ask you about, but first we'll get, let's go with our myth that we asked, which is there is a kidney stone belt in the United States. Is that a myth or is that a fact? That's a fact. And it has to do with the temperature, I'm sure. It has to do with the temperature, um, the heat index. So the further south you go in the United States, the more likely you are to develop kidney stones. The further north, the less likely. Yeah, so you don't, you're not very busy up here, are you? <laughs> during I'm most the, of the year. I'm we trade out seasonal <laughs> affective disorder up here. <laughs> so true. Um, so, another myth that I had was about herbal remedies. Are there, well, first of all, is that a myth? Is there an herbal remedy for kidney stones? There is not an herbal remedy that's currently recognized as being beneficial. Okay. Are there any remedies, any alternatives to what you have, have all discussed with regarding to standard treatment, traditional treatment for stones? Well, I I did see one lady who (laughs) dissolved her stone on her own. Uh, She had a huge stone, three-centimeter stone in her kidney, so like a walnut. Okay, walnut, that's uh, more than an inch in diameter. And it was in her where? In her kidney. How big is a kidney? The kidney is about the size of your hand. Okay. Um, And so she was sent to me to have her stone removed, but her neighbor had told her to drink baking soda. Uh, to dissolve her stone. So by the time she came to me, she had actually dissolved her stone because she had a uric acid stone. 
Now, less than 10% of stones are uric acid, so she was just fortunate. She was lucky. Um, But, yes, drinking baking soda, water, if you have a uric acid stone, would dissolve it. But I wouldn't recommend just doing that on your own. Are there the uric acid stones or the different types of stones? Are there some of those that are more affected by stress or food or protein like you had mentioned earlier? those are the calcium-based stones. And those are the ones you will see in the younger patients in the 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Those are the people that get the calcium-based stones. And does taking calcium supplements contribute to stones? Only if you're taking them and you don't need them. I would never tell a person to discontinue their calcium supplementation if they need it for their bone health. We can work around that. If your calcium levels are high in your urine, but you need the calcium supplements to help um, augment bone growth and health, then we can give you medication to dry that calcium back into the bone and prevent the loss in the urine. All right, so let's uh, get back to the topic of uh, prevention as we end the conversation. And you talked about hydration, and it's important. Importance. Are there uh, fluids, uh, but like sports drinks that you uh, ought to avoid or particular foods that you ought to avoid? So I tell patients that you can drink anything but avoid sports drinks. Really? And the issue with sports drinks is that they have a lot of sodium in them. And sodium can raise your risk of stone formation because it pulls calcium into the urine. So I'll ask my patients, to drink more fluids, and I, I'm fine if it's soda. It's better if it's a clear soda because those have citric acid, which is a natural preventer of stone formation. Hmm. But, you know, an occasional dark soda is not going to hurt them either. Anything that turns into urine is what I want. And isn't there <laughs> the mom, one mom to another? What color should I be telling my children their urine should be? Yes. Um, so if you could read a newspaper through your urine, then you're fine. Oh. You want it to be as clear as possible. Okay. And if it's yellow, that means it's more concentrated and means you need to drink more. Correct. But of all the, the fluids out there, water is the best, isn't water it? Water is the best. Anything else? Iced tea? Yeah, it, originally, oh. it was thought that tea was associated with stone formation, but we're finding out that more and more that that is probably a falsehood. All right, there you go. Treatment, prevention, and risk factors. In the kidney stone belt in America. Yeah, that's Know where it's at. And we are not part of it. (laughs) No, thank goodness. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Cranbeck, for coming in to talk about kidney stones. Dr. Amy Cranbeck is a urologist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, chocolate lovers rejoice. And recent studies shows eating chocolate, either dark or milk chocolate, may lower your risk of heart disease. We'll get the details from a Mayo Clinic heart specialist. And robot-delivered anesthesia. We'll have an update on the latest developments in the field of anesthesiology. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Avian flu, it's hit the poultry industry hard. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with the Mayo Clinic News Network headline. The United States Department of Agriculture says egg producers have lost millions of hens. Mayo Clinic infectious disease Dr. Pratish Tosh says this strain of bird flu spreads fast through flocks and is often fatal to infected birds. But should people be worried about getting sick from the avian flu? Right now we're not really seeing human infection uh, with the H5N2 virus that we're seeing among poultry in the Midwest. But you know that's good news for people but not great news 
for the birds. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says there is no evidence that anyone has ever been infected with bird flu by eating chicken or eggs. The CDC has these recommendations to help you stay healthy. Avoid direct contact with wild birds. Avoid domestic birds who are sick. And if you are around a sick bird, monitor yourself for things such as flu-like symptoms. All across the continent, people are dealing with extreme heat. Meaning, says Mayo Clinic emergency medicine specialist Dr. David Claypool, that excessive heat exposure can cause serious health issues. Because you could have heat exhaustion, which could develop into what's called heat stroke. That's when your body is no longer able to regulate temperature. You stop sweating, you get confused or disoriented. And your body temp becomes dangerously high, 104 degrees Fahrenheit or above. Treatment for heat exhaustion includes getting the affected person into a cool space, spritz them with water, and keep them hydrated. For heat stroke, seek emergency medical help. Dr. Claypool says a key to prevention is stay hydrated. If you pay attention to your body's clues, you can stay safe and healthy in the heat. The warmth of the sun can certainly make us feel good and it can even improve our mood, but too much can be dangerous, especially for kids. Children's skin, in particular babies, are very sensitive to the sun. Dr. Don Davis says it's best to keep the little ones out of the rays completely. We recommend that children under the age of six months do not get sunlight exposure and simply get vitamin D uh, through supplementation through breast milk or formula. Dr. Davis says children over six months can be in the sun but urges parents to use protective clothing and sunscreen. The best sunscreen to use on young children contain physical blockers instead of chemical blockers. And the physical blockers we like to recommend include titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. And that's today's Mayo Clinic News Network headline. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. Along with Tracy McRae. Go ahead, break open that chocolate bar and indulge. Here's another study, this one from researchers in England, that shows that eating chocolate, either dark or milk chocolate, what? is associated. Yep, yep, that's I why can't believe I am it. so healthy. Is associated with a lower risk of heart disease and stroke. Joining us in studio, cardiologist, heart specialist, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. You believe this? Chocolate, yay. Yeah, it's Either true. it used to be just dark was okay, and now we've got both that are good for you. Well, we just have to be, it is true, we have to be careful. That, remember, moderation in all things, excess in none, you know. <laughs> Don't go out and drink or eat six big candy bars. But I think that we were talking before you got here even about, we're not talking about Snickers bars here. We're talking about a single piece of chocolate, correct? Correct. I have a uh, you know standard sized chocolate bar in my desk and uh, eat a little snippet every day. It lasts me three weeks. <laughs> you know I have it at lunch. Oh, that's lunch. a big bar. You got You've one got of those some... big ones. No, no, no. no. Self control. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, so chocolate's good for the heart. Chocolate is good. There are things in chocolate that do good things for your body and for your heart and for your blood vessels. The flavonols, flavonoids, they're called polyphenols. They do a couple of things. One's they the dark chocolate will reduce inflammation. You know, inflammation is the thing that gets all our arteries into trouble. Something damages the lining of the artery, cholesterol, smoking, stress. It gets inflamed, it tears, and then you get a heart attack. So inflammation is reduced with the chocolate. The more the dark, the better. Get at least 50% dark, ideally 70%, we've always said. This study seemed to indicate maybe milk chocolate, which yeah. has more of I'd the never uh, heard that part before. milk in it. But, um, you know, it, it's not maybe just the chocolate. It's also what you eat with it. 
and your lifestyle with it. So that was just an observational study. They didn't really give people the chocolate, you know, for five years and check them. All right. You know, as long as we've got you cornered uh, here, I, I want to ask you about some other uh, foods uh, that I have read that are, are supposedly um, healthy for your heart, but, but I sometimes I need a, I need a mayo opinion on this, and <laughs> one of them is salmon, and you know it's one of the fish that I think is tolerable. I've never been a huge fish fan. Spoken as someone from Iowa. <laughs> That's yes. right. We didn't have salmon <laughs> down in Iowa. You know, we ate beef every every meal or pork. That's right. And then every once in a while a chicken if we could catch one. <laughs> so you put that salmon on the grill, and it's full of this fat. And and I'm worried that someday you're going to come back and tell me that you've been telling me that that's good fat, but it's still fat. So I want salmon is good for you. Yeah, salmon is good for you. Seafood is good for you. You know the scallops, the salmon, the any of the deep sea fish. The oils in there are actually good oils. So there's a difference between the oil on that salmon and the grease that comes out of the T-bone. Exactly right. And the <laughs> fish oil is actually much healthier. All right, what about olive oil? And then you hear about virgin olive oil, and then you got your extra virgin olive oil. What's good about olive oil, and which one do you buy? Yeah, olive oil is a monounsaturated fat as compared to a saturated fat, which is more from the meat products and dairy and things. What's good about monounsaturated is they are anti-inflammatory also. They reduce that irritation of the lining of our arteries. And that's not just heart attacks. It's also for your brain. It's also for your penis and blood flow, all these important places. So, yes, important. Very so, important, yes. So the olive oil, the extra virgin is the first press. It's got the best oil in it. After that, they, uh, they go down. They're decremental, and not as much good oil is in it. All right, so you want extra virgin. You're an extra virgin guy. EVOO, and that's pretty much all you can find these days. That's what I write on my shopping list. EVOO. Yeah. When it comes to products that are supposed to be, or foods that are supposed to be heart healthy, I think about oatmeal because oatmeal. they slap it right on that box that it's good for your heart. Very true. Oatmeal is. It actually uh, inhibits some of the bad cholesterol formation in our liver. And so oatmeal is a good thing. It doesn't have to be hot oatmeal. It can be cold oatmeal, raw oatmeal. It doesn't have to be fancy steel cut. It could just be the stuff that you buy from, uh, you know, in the good Midwest mm-hmm. oatmeal. All right. What about nuts? Are all nuts good for your heart? Uh, all nuts uh, pretty much are good for your heart. Some, there's different tiers. Tree nuts are a little better than ground nuts. Now, What's peanuts. Tree nut? It's well, like a tree walnut. Nut, almond, walnut, yeah. Okay. Uh, the uh, ground nuts, like uh, actually peanut, you mentioned, is a legume. You know, technically, it's not really a nut. But legumes are healthy for you, too, though. <laughs> now, so legumes. That's, now, that's now, beans. Now, okay. Yeah. Any we kind got of beans, beans and, and chickpeas and. Yeah, legume, a definition of legume is a seed. And so okay. the seeds are all good. You know, it could be sunflower seed, could be the, the chickpeas, et cetera. They're all good for you. They're, they don't have saturated fat in them. They've got a lot of fiber, a lot of protein. They're good, good for your heart. All right. Speaking of seeds, what about flaxseed? I thought you gave yeah. that to the birds. Yeah, flaxseed is interesting. If you, if you don't grind it up, you know, it just passes right through you. So you've got to grind the flaxseed, number one. The number two, the reason you eat flaxseed, if not for your gut, it's for the oils in it. Hmm. Uh, the DHA and the EPA, which is what we also find in fish oil. You know, we <laughs> talked about it a minute ago. Yeah. The thing is there's about 20 times more uh, of the good oil in fish oil than there is in flaxseed. So if you're taking fish oil, you don't really need to eat the flaxseed if it's for your heart. All right, and you don't. You have to grind up the flaxseed to get the benefit. Right, otherwise you don't absorb it. All right, what about soy? Soy is good. Uh, soy used to say it lowered cholesterol. It doesn't really seem to lower it as much as we thought. But it's a, uh, it's got a lot of good chemicals in it that help us. It, d- again, doesn't have saturated fat. 
not a lot of fiber, fills us up, good protein. And what are some foods that are that are uh, have a lot of soy in them? Uh, well, soy sauce, we say don't eat because it has a lot of salt, salt. in them. Uh, you know, you can make uh, certainly like a uh, ground-up paste from it. It's very common in the Eastern uh, Asian countries. They eat that. Uh, soups from them. Uh, you can mix them in. Uh, edamame is probably the most common thing uh, we okay. know in this country. Soy milk, good. Soy milk is good, lower calorie, and uh, certainly very healthy for you. All right. Um, avocado. Avocado, another good fat. Lots. Got to be careful with the calories. Don't eat too much of it. But there's good fat, monounsaturated fat in avocado. Remember, Tom, nothing that grows from the ground has cholesterol in it. Really? Oh, yeah. so we have to sit and so think on that for that. a second. Yeah. Nothing that grows from the ground. All right. Yeah, well, this uh, to go back to circle back around. This study said that chocolate is what um, what got us going down this path. Chocolate yeah. is good. Yeah. You know, it. If we wanted to add something else. Besides chocolate, is it salmon or what's the other thing we should try to start eating? Try to add to our diet. Yes, the I think that the fish, any of the fish or seafoods, are very good to do. Clearly, the five fruits and vegetables are incredibly important. In fact, that's even more important than chocolate, believe it or not. Whoa! A serving is a, again a tennis ball. The more the skins on, the better. The less cooked, the better. Uh, the fresher, the better. I would say if you want to add something to make the chocolate taste even better, it would be a little vanilla ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I don't not think on your that, list. No, not on the list. All right, red wine. Last. I thought you were going to say red wine. Yeah. The uh, small amounts of wine, it doesn't really matter. Your body does not know where the alcohol came from. It could be red wine, white wine, beer, Everclear. It doesn't know the difference in the alcohol. Small amounts actually are, are helpful. I never tell patients to drink if they don't drink alcohol or have other reasons they can't. But uh, small amounts, maybe two or three ounces of wine, four or five ounces of beer, half a jigger of hard liquor has been shown to uh, help the blood vessels and help your heart and lower your risk of heart attack. All right, there you go. All the foods that are good for your ticker. From heart (laughs) specialist, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Thanks again, Steve, for being with us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, anesthesia delivered by robots. We'll have the latest from Mayo Clinic anesthesiologist. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. High-tech advances, including the use of robotics, are changing how surgery is done. We know that. For example, the surgical removal of the prostate or prostatectomy is now more and more. It's being done with a robot, which is just guided by the surgeon. Robotics and a certain level of automation are also being used in the field of anesthesiology. In 2013, the FDA approved a device that administers anesthesia during colonoscopy. Just how do such devices work? Will we see more of them and how safe are they? Joining us to answer these and other questions about changes in the field of anesthesiology is Mayo Clinic anesthesiologist Dr. Denise Waddell. Welcome to the program. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Waddell. Always nice to have you. Great. It's always great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You know, when it comes to anesthesia, we've come a long way, baby. (laughs) Haven't we, though? (laughs) Yeah. When I was a medical student, we had a blood pressure cuff and a bag we would squeeze. And when the blood pressure would go up, meaning the patient was starting to wake up, you'd squeeze the bag a little harder. Mm -hmm. It's so different, isn't it? It's remarkably different. And I think um, the differences span 
this last 30 years, I've seen so many changes that it's it's almost a completely different practice. And one of the fascinating things about anesthesiologists to me, and I think is why I was drawn to the specialty, is they love tech toys. Okay, <laughs> Anesthesiologists <laughs> and, and anesthesia providers overall love technology, and they love change. So it's been a specialty that has overall embraced change through the years, and that's been a really positive thing for patient uh, care, for patient safety, and for patient management. But did either of you ever think that you'd see a robot helping with anesthesia? I'm only going to say yes because this has been attempted in sort of preliminary stages over the 30 years I've been an anesthesiologist. And it started out, um, and and, and we use so many technical things. Many people compare the uh, anesthesia area as similar to a cockpit now because we have Mm -hmm. a variety of machines a huge array of displays and, you know, more and more technology involved all the time. But even back, I'm going to say 20 years ago in the orthopedics, remember we had the little nerve monitor, Tom, that mm-hmm. would uh, give more nerve uh, block uh, medication based on the uh, amount of twitch that the patient had in their thumb. Mm. So even back 20 years ago, we were trying to do these automated processes. They weren't very successful at that time. This is the new step, the the latest thing that you've brought up. So explain, yeah, what explain it, it to us. <laughs> I know, everyone's yeah. so excited Tell about, us about it. it. You know, um, you got so much stuff up there now, there's hardly room for the surgeon. I'm afraid if you get a, a robot up there, too, we'll be forced right out of the There'll room. There'll always be room for you in radio, Tom. <laughs> yeah, well, we're always a little afraid that the robots are going to replace us, but so far they haven't replaced our surgical colleagues, so we're feeling pretty good about that. Um, this is more of um, a an automated machine. However, than than what we would visualize as a robot. I'd love to. I'd actually love to work with a robot, but I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime. Um, the Jetsons, I think, had a had a major effect on me. But um, what this does is it delivers a drug called propofol. And this drug is used in many of our anesthetics at present. It's an intravenous agent. And it gives that drug in a graduated way according to how the patient's vital signs are responding. So in one sense, it sounds theoretically very safe. In another sense, I think if it, uh, you know, one of our concerns is that it will put the anesthesiologist or anesthesia care, trained care people fairly remotely from the patient if something does happen. So those are the pluses and minuses of it in a nutshell. Propofol, that's the Michael Jackson drug. Thank you for bringing that up. I almost said that because that's how people associate it. In fact, that drug was inappropriately used to induce sleep. It doesn't induce a, a really normal kind of sleep, but more of an anesthetic sleep in Michael Jackson and was uh, ultimately caused his death. So it's dangerous, and that's why you have to have a professional there who knows how to use it. And so that's where you come in, and maybe a robot might not understand that. And of course, it's not a robot's job to understand that, but that's where... The key piece is, right? They Correct. still need you, you think? I think they still need us. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm holding on to that hope anyway. Here's what's happening in anesthesia that's interesting, and this plays into this. As our um, uh, ability to monitor the patients has improved and gotten more technical, we have been able to step back and cover a little bit more remotely with the help of our extended care team. Um, that includes uh, primarily nurse anesthetists who are very high 
highly trained. Um, and at, at this point in our program are actually achieving PhDs along with their uh, nurse anesthesia degrees. So what we're doing in healthy patients or patients who have, you know, not significant comorbidities is we are able to actually cover more rooms with these uh, very highly trained extended care folks with the help of all of these monitors. And this, uh, this particular automated thing should, should help it. Where we are concerned is that it be, it is somewhat marketed as if it could take over the role of trained anesthesia care people, and that could be dangerous. Yeah, and particularly, it probably would never take over your role, but potentially uh, part of what the nurse anesthetist does. And explain to us uh, what the nurse anesthetist does, because uh, they are a vital part of your team. They're, and I would say anesthesia is one of the first specialties to actually have this extended care team and use it in a very, very functional and appropriate way. And the nurse anesthetist is a direct ex- extension of the anesthesia care team, and often the person who is right in in the room with the patient. Now, let me be clear. There are practices where all, um, the an- all of the anesthesia is delivered by an anesthesiologist. And there are practices like ours where we have a large number of nurse anesthetists who um, we work together with to manage patients. So what the nurse anesthetist does is um, they're right in the room with the patient. They deliver the anesthetic medications, monitor the patient's condition, are in direct contact with the patient so that they can modulate the amount of anesthetic drug that's being given to provide the safest and, uh, and yet the most comfortable setting for that patient. This piece of machinery is in its most aggressive way touted as taking the place of that by its ability to titrate or give a a graduated amount of propofol according to the feedback it's getting from the monitors that it's it's following, which which are limited compared to what a nurse anesthetist is looking at in a patient. They are suggesting that they can actually replace that very highly trained and, of course, a little more expensive individual in the room. Um, we're concerned that that may not be as successful as it's suggested to be. But you are always available, and you are always there when the patient goes to sleep, and you're always there when the patient wakes up. It's somewhat analogous to an airplane flight, isn't it? I mean, the two most dangerous times are when you take off and when you land, and most of the time, probably in between, it's on autopilot. But you're there, and you're also immediately available should anything happen during the the procedure. Right, right. And, and comparing it to an airplane flight, I think, is a very good way because in most flights, nothing goes wrong. Everything can be pretty much automated. You're there to help with takeoff and landing and anything that might happen in between. But as we know, if a critical event occurs, a flock of geese fly <laughs> into your engine, for example, which can occur under anesthesia um, in a similar way, um, there are trained personnel immediately available to get you through that crisis and uh, land the plane safely. Yeah, i got to tell you, I would a lot rather have you there than a robot. So I hope it doesn't happen while, while we're working yeah. in my lifetime. I'm with you. Anesthesiologist Dr. Denise Waddell, thanks so much for being with us. I, my pleasure. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs.
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.